Hello, I'm Jeff Lester, and welcome to Wait, What? A comics podcast for the Savage Critics website. Today, Graham McMillan and I talk about San Diego Comic-Con and our different experiences there, two new books that we recently read, and we touch briefly on the genius of Eddie Campbell. But mainly, we gripe about San Diego Comic-Con. There was no easy way to cut this uh, podcast in half, so this is going to be slightly longer than usual, right around an hour. Sorry about that, but thanks very much for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Jeff! <laughs> Graham! Jeff! <laughs> it's been so That's long how we since should we've start every, That's how we should start every podcast, <laughs> just shouting each other's names. I'm Jeff Lester, I'm Grimacon, and we are Wild Stallions! And everyone <laughs> you went with a Bill and Ted reference. That's really I'm so cool. glad you got it. I honestly was like, I wonder if he's going to get this or think I'm just calling him horse. <laughs> no, fortunately, I was able to get it, but that would have been pretty great if I had been completely baffled. Or who knows? Incredibly flattered, you know? Like, this is the welcome to the oh my god, we're still insane from con a week later edition. Yes, the we won't tell you when we recorded this, but somehow it's like a week later edition. So, yeah, Graham, your impressions. <laughs> Graham! <laughs> what? <laughs> so, uh, so, yes, tell me your impressions of San Diego Comic-Con, sir. I had two completely different impressions of San Diego Comic-Con. Mm-hmm. I had the work impression and I had the social impression. Right. And the work impression was, oh, my God, there's so much to do. And feeling very frustrated because, and this is completely inside baseball and no one will care about this, mm-hmm. uh, a lot of people working for online publications this year mm-hmm. thought that Twitter stole the thunder. Mm. Which is really funny because I've written a, a thing in Variety where they were like, Twitter was a fail at, at uh, Comic-Con. But um, any news at a panel was Twittered before we could get a story up. Right. And it actually, to my mind, impacted our audience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like, things we thought would be the big news stories were not. And what we were finding was it was the features and the interviews that, like, a day later would all of a sudden get a lot of people reading. Mm-hmm. But the news stories were like, oh, my God, this has happened. And pretty much everyone's like, I read that on Twitter an hour ago. Wow. Um, and it was funny because I thought I, was, I thought I was thinking that and just being paranoid. Mm-hmm. And then I was in, of all places, the Smallville press room. And um, Stephen from Collider.com said the same thing to me completely unprompted. He was like, I'm getting killed by Twitter this con. And I was like, so am I. Thank God you agree. <laughs> um, so it was, it was really, I mean, it was really hard work. We were going to, we were just continually going things. And when I wasn't in panels or impressions, I'd be on the floor, like trying to meet people. And that would be, you know, from when the con opened to when the con finished. And then there'd be other things like there were the Eisners or there was parties or whatever. Um, and then you go home and you write it all up and you get to sleep at like 3 o'clock or, or later mm-hmm. and then you get up at 6.30 the next day so that would just be exhausting and completely overwhelming like it completely took over everything mm-hmm. to the point where I'd be walking to the con with like a sense of dread <laughs> God. Um, but on the other hand socialising which is sort of like fit in between those things like well I have to eat sometime mm-hmm. I'll eat with friends was great. Yeah. yeah <laughs> like no. I like I loved it. And maybe it's because I moved away from San Francisco, so there's a lot of people who I just didn't hadn't seen for like, you know, more than six months and then you were all there. Um or or whatever, but that part was wonderful. Yeah, no, I I, I thought the socializing was uh definitely the best part of the con for me. And again, one of those this was the the first con where I was somewhat remotely in the 21st century in the sense of uh, between being able to exchange text messages or uh, check stuff with the the Wi-Fi on the floor of the con, I was actually able to coordinate stuff with people and, um, you know, basically end up at meals when and not have to get anything. That would all be something that would sort of come together uh, on the fly. Which really doesn't sound that impressive to, I'm sure, a lot of the people listening, maybe, until you realize that you're doing this in a crowd of more than 125,000 people spread across, I don't know, you know, what, a mile 
Yeah, I was ha- I was having this conversation the other day. I was saying that um, at one point during the con, entirely work related, I just got an email that I had to reply to. That just felt weirdly overwhelming because you're suddenly aware when like you're having this thing that you have to do, and you've got all this work to do. You realize you're surrounded by 125,000 people, and you're like, "This is kind of weird. This is a really odd situation." Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's like, so I'm writing to my sister, and and I'm like, you know, blah 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 family, and I kind of want to be like, and by the way, you know, Chuck just walked by, and, <laughs> and I'm not sure how I feel about that. The weirdest thing that happened, um, well, there's two weird things. Mm-hmm. One was, I mean, cons are full of cosplayers, which mm-hmm. is normal and you've come to expect that and it's a lot of fun I was sitting in the corridor writing up a story one day and these cosplayers come up who are playing um, Alice in Wonderland and like they're actually playing uh, Alice in Wonderland the girl dressed as Alice is running away from the Red Queen and a guard and it took me a minute to realise they were playing Mm because she was running away and she was caught and she was pulled by her hair to talk to the Red Queen, who demanded that she kiss her feet. And before you click into, oh, they're playing, you have this moment of, what the hell is going on? And, you know, I was out my chair to stop it before I realized. Wow. You know, because it's just like, what? Yeah. Are, you know, are they really chasing this girl? Have they really caught her? And there's only, I don't know, there's something that gave it away. Like, I think it was the way they were talking. And I was like, oh, no one talks like that. Right, right. Um, but it's really, it was really disturbing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and did I tell you about the the, the people with the, the woman with the t-shirts that had the print on them that had the? And I, I'm beginning to think I imagined this now because no one can find any proof of this, and I'm convinced I saw it. Okay, let's hear it. I haven't heard this. Um, I'm convinced there were women who had a print on their t-shirt that said something along the lines of. Take a photograph of me, and I think it was show it to your webcam, and my top disappears, or something like that. And I wish I'd taken a photograph of it because no one else knows what I'm talking about, and I can't find any proof of it anywhere. You know, I someone told me about it, and it was probably you. So I mean, that's that's the <laughs> yeah, thing. Yeah, put it this like... way: no, no one else I've spoken to has seen them. Mm-hmm. And so I'm getting to think that like I, I had a really weird dream at some point, mm-hmm. um, but I remember seeing that and just being appalled, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. just being incensed. Like that's so um, wrong. <laughs> like I don't even know how to describe it. That's just wrong. Yeah. It doesn't yeah. matter that these women have been hired to do that. There's just something weird about the whole dynamic of that. Yeah, you know. It's like it's like exploit me without my knowledge. I don't know. There's just something really disturbing to me about it. That still, like booth babes are a thing that you just have to get used to. The con, mm-hmm. in a way, like it, it's almost not worth getting upset about it because you can't do anything about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was like something else. This was like booth babe plus. This was something that I couldn't just like. Oh, it's con. Instead, I was kind of like, no, I don't care how much you're being paid. That is wrong. <laughs> like, there's all the porn people at con, right? Mm-hmm. And I have more respect for the porn people than I do for the woman who did that job because there's something extra. Um, why don't you violate me? About the. There's something more interactively creepy, creepily violating about what these women were doing. Right. In a way. You know what I mean? Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. I really was just like, oh my god. <laughs> well, actually, I think the best part will be if it turns out that you made it all up, in which case it becomes creepy on a whole nother level. Exactly. That's what I'm worried about. That, like, I misread their shirts. <laughs> and their shirts were like, take a photo of me and, you know, go online and win a prize. I, like, if I misread it, then it becomes, what is my subconscious saying? <laughs> <laughs> like, I was looking for something to be appalled about, and I created this thing. Well, it could be. I mean, and, and I think there's an underlying current of that, where, um, you know, I, I don't know, I, I would love to actually talk to Douglas Wolk in a way about San Diego this year, because I know that he's like, 
he's he's gone to Burning Man a lot, and it it's been a while since I've gone to Burning Man. You know, I, I went for like five or six years though, so I had a sense of how it sort of changes and grows, and I I sort of came in after a really big transition for Burning Man, where suddenly the numbers of people just started growing and growing and growing, and it became something very different from what it had been previously, and I think when we were talking to uh, Sophie, is it, she compared it to Burning Man um, when we were on the floor talking to her, and it was was an idea that had been bouncing around in my brain that, that San Diego is sort of become kind of weirdly Burning Man-esque in that it it's such, it becomes such a weird, odd endurance uh, test, kind of. It's like, you take all these things that you, that are really amazing, but you jam them into this context that, that actually takes a lot of active awareness in order to just survive. You know, I mean, I know yeah, that it, sounds it, stupid. It, but... it becomes this weird endurance test. It totally and the, does. Fu- the funny thing is, I don't know if this was your experience, but everyone I talked to before Con mm-hmm. was dreading it. Mm-hmm. Everyone. There wasn't one person who, that I talked to who was excited. Everyone was like, I have to do this. Mm-hmm. You know, even if I'm going to be announcing a project there, I don't particularly want to be there. Right. You know, like the closest. I think Colleen was kind of excited about it, but I can't I can't remember if she was or not. Mm-hmm. But I mean, definitely, uh, I was talking to Laura Hudson from Comic Alliance uh, the Friday before, and the two of us were just dreading it. I mean, really, <laughs> really, really dreading it. Um, and I was, and because we're recording this, I will be um, secretive. I was emailing a person at Marvel. Um, before the con, and they said that they just didn't want to go. Mm-hmm. That they they want they would rather the movies and television to go entirely. Right. That that was what they would that was what they would find better mm-hmm. than having to go to the con. And the weird thing was, all of my I don't want to say positive experiences, but all the experiences I remember from the press rooms and from the, the panels and from the interviews are of television, mm-hmm. not of comics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and I interviewed Joe Sad and I interviewed Dadadio, and I talked to a lot of people from comics. Mm-hmm. And the things I remember are not the comic things at all. The comics almost seemed like an afterthought. Mm. Yeah, no, uh, I, think I, I think you saw uh, when I sort of live Twittered um, that Trondheim panel Someone asked him about his impressions of San Diego Comic-Con because it was his first time there. And, uh, you know, he had he needed to get some help with the translation from Mark Siegel, but he basically said, I feel sorry for you, you know. He's like, we've got uh, Anglomem. We have real comic conventions. Yeah, that's kind of what he was saying. I mean, he wasn't saying it in a snobby way, but, uh, you know, he was very, well, or maybe he was, but he was like, I like I like comics. I don't, you know, I've never approved uh, toys based on my figures because I'd rather people buy books than toys, you know. So mm-hmm. to see this where it's all this stuff and then there's this this little bubble of comics... You know, for him, you know, he's been at some place where the entire city's taken away, taken over, but it is, it is all just comics, top to bottom. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and and there is something that's weirdly. Uh, I, I actually, you know, by contrast, I was at I was at Con, and I I skipped over, like I don't think I did anything apart from walking the floor. Uh, that wasn't comics related. All the panels I went to, with, with the exception of a, a panel for uh, writers who write tie-in products to uh, to big media things. Um, apart from that, like everything that it, well, no, that's not true. At one point, I did end up in the Yu-Gi-Oh video game World Championships at one point uh, on Twitter. That, that must have been you taking the wrong turn. <laughs> I totally, I totally went in there just for a laugh, and I ended up in in sitting in the front row uh, of watching, you know, the world champion of Yu-Gi-Oh, uh, bl- you know, blow through his preliminary round against somebody else. And I mean, just all there was a guy on a, I had uh, 
microphone who was announcing like like he was a sports announcer calling out all the moves and everything and all these kids like playing Yukio decks or whatever and and there was a way in which I was sort of you know I had that moment of strange American you know blind boosterism where I'm like yeah take that Anglomem you know you can't you can't uh, end up seeing you know cosplaying Planet of the Apes people uh, and then go watch a bunch of 14-year-old kids like trounce each other in Yu-Gi-Oh! and then be able to go hit the dollar bins at Anglomem. San Diego is kind of its own unique thing, and it's kind of awesome, you know? And I, I had that Go moment. team! Yeah, exactly. Go team comics and go team pop culture. Uh, but then two days later, I, I don't know if I sort of revised that opinion. I think what struck me about San Diego this year were... Uh, on just about every panel I, I went to, and I have to say I, up front that I did not go to, on very many, most of what I heard were uh, people uh, who are established cartoon, you know, successful alternative cartoonists like um, Seth and Hope Larson and Louis Trondheim, all issue warnings about giving up too much of your freedom in exchange for money. And that was kind of sobering to me, you know, um, because this was, this wasn't, you know, these weren't, they weren't talking about the, you know, they hadn't sh- sold their Hollywood movie. They weren't talking about, um, you know, some huge Hollywood development thing. This was just them, you know, in the next stage of indie comics where they're entering into the publishing industry and they're dealing with book editors and finding out that like, you know, I mean, Hope Larson didn't have, does not have the the contractual rights to design her own cover. So, you know, she had to talk about, in talking about Chiggers, uh, she talked about the whole design process problem of fighting with the, well, I don't know if it was fighting, but, but she had disputes with the marketing people over the cover and she could not win the fight, you know. Mm-hmm. And this is yeah. after having three separate books come out from other publishers where she had the, you know, she designed the whole thing, you know, stim to stern or ship to stern or however that saying goes. Uh, And and so hearing people who, like, really, I mean, you know, I I assume she probably makes pretty okay money. I I, I assume Seth does too, but, you know, not not Transformer $2 from this sort of thing. Um, And to hear them say the less money you take up front the more freedom that you can have. And there's already an awareness of, hey, good news, you know, you're a big success. Now you have to fight to keep your freedom. It struck me as a really poignant message to be hearing in the middle, you know, in the bubble within the bubble within the bubble, you know, uh, where outside, of course, you just have all this Hollywood stuff swimming around you and tremendous amounts of money. um, And yet you really wonder whether anyone out there has any control over the stuff that they're doing because here at this heart of this little tiny bubble these people who are pretty much uh at the top of their game um you know within this sort of tightly conscripted profession are kind of saying yeah don't don't sign on to let people edit your books because editors don't know anything about comics did you find that this was a really more so than usual like um, self-aware convention, I just almost every panel I went to, with the exception of like the heroes panel, which was really surreal and like a Twilight thing, um, there was like a meta element where people were talking not only about like this is my comic, this is my uh, show, this is my movie, but it was this is the marketing plan and Comic-Con is part of the marketing plan Mm -hmm. and we're trying to reach out for this. Like, everyone was talking more behind the scenes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and and it was really weird. I mean, even, I mean, even something like a a Marvel panel, Mm -hmm. they talk about the process and they talk about, I don't know, they talk about marketing and, you know, how do you decide what the pricing is? I mean, the most fascinating part of any panel I saw the entire weekend was Dan Buckley telling a fan why Marvel books are three ninety nine, mm-hmm. and I really hope that ends up online somewhere. I know that Marvel were recording the panels because he was pissed. He he was angry at the fan for asking the question. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And it really seemed like everyone was very... It, it, it stopped being, this is my work. Hey, let's talk about my work. Let's talk about me making the work. And more, let's talk about the process. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I mean, everything that I went to was unbelievably process-filled, but I, I, I think you would actually have a better awareness of how meta that was and spread across the entire con, because I was sort of self-selecting for... You know, with a couple of people where I went to panels that were specifically because I I almost, you know, couldn't help not going. Like, a lot of the stuff I went to was entirely about, you know, the process of breaking in or what to do once you're in or, you know, various aspects where they're they're kind of... I mean, there's always something that's been kind of odd to me about Comic-Con or all conventions anyway because there's that element of like, hey, want to break into comics? We'll show you how, you know, kind of panels that everyone... that en- ends up being like, you know, a ton of people showing up for. I think the thing that, that is kind of interesting is is in past years... Comic-Con kind of ran on this idea of, you know, all conventions run on the idea of the the pros are there and they usually take the time to say, hey, you know what, I was just like you, I wanted, I read comics, I love comics, I still read comics, I still love comics, you know, you want to know how I broke in, here's how I broke in. And somewhere over the line, maybe it's just all the, the um, you know, all the encounters on the frick, on the internet wearing off the, the lubrication between fans and professionals, there was a certain amount of, you know, at least from the, the aura that I got of DC and Marvel of like, yeah, here we are, we love the fans, and then you ask them a question, and it's like, fuck you, you know? I mean, it was really yeah, like, it, it was the, the Marvel panel, The Marvel panels in particular, I thought everyone seemed upset. I mean, with the exception of, like, Jim McCann, who never seems upset. Mm-hmm. But, um, I mean, I remember at, I guess it was, uh, I think it was Mondo Marvel. It was the first Marvel panel with lots of writers. Um, Matt Fraction was there. Matt Fraction is normally a really genial guy. Oh, super, super so in front of crowds and with people. Yeah, and, and, and someone asked... Um, when is minor character... No, something like, why is minor X-Men character that I can't even remember the name of acting like a pussy? <laughs> and and the response was pretty much like, have you read my book? <laughs> like, I just left it like that. But like, not, not in a comedy way, in a sort of like, how can you say that if you have read my book? Fuck you. Right. Well, I, I mean, there was, great, there was a great moment that, that Matt... Maxwell talks about on his, on his blog that really was priceless where at the breaking into to Marvel panel a fan got up and asked a question like you know why does it seem like Marvel is so stagnant creatively and it just seems <laughs> wow good good go yeah seriously like it was the most alienating it was like a question tailored to alienate everybody and then why are you all assholes and yeah. when can I replace Exactly. It was kind of like, why do you keep giving jobs to the same eight people, and when are you going to break that stranglehold so somebody can do something new and exciting? And he's saying it to the eight people, you know, and and it was it, what was great about it was halfway through the question, he realized how horrible it sounded, and he could not dig his way out. By the time <laughs> he got to the end of the question, it was just kind of a tapering off, you know? I mean, it really was just... He's like, never mind. <laughs> And they were like, gee, how should we feel that, you know? So I think that there's kind of a, a weird, at least with, with the larger properties, you know, they put together they put together this thing and it's like, hey, let's go. We can't wait to meet the crowds and the people. One thing that really struck me about Marvel and DC, like on the floor, their booths were so weirdly completely impersonal in utterly different ways. I mean, Marvel was running some sort of crazed swap meet kind of thing going on where they're like, it's almost like bingo where they're like on the microphone and they're, you know, working up enthusiasm and they're whipping out collectibles and people are like going crazy, but it doesn't seem like any kind of conducive way to actually interact with the company. You know, I mean, Marvel's booth was exhausting. 
Yeah, yeah. And it was just, it was always full. It was always people doing their best to work the crowds. And that's, you know, that's their job and great. But if you spent any more than like five minutes there, mm-hmm. you just had to sit down. Yeah, yeah. It was just busy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and DC's booth was just massive. Mm-hmm. Well, it sort of it sort of makes me wonder if like it's sort of a perfect contrast of where the two companies are in that Marvel's seemed like aggressively eager to court fans and absolutely utterly impersonal, and DC seemed massive and empty and trying to avoid direct co- eye contact. You know, like every person working at the DC panel had their had their names turned backward like the lanyard was backward so you could not see the names of anybody you were talking to to be fair my lanyard was backward a lot of the time and that was just what happened like yeah. i don't like i don't think they necessarily were turning back they're like you can't know my name ah uh, you know it's one of those weird things where i i it sounds absolutely conspiratorial and yeah i'm sure that they would go oh no 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 of course not you know i i wasn't meaning to do that but because mine did spin around a lot too, but but I mean like every person, like every time, and it's not like I went a million times, but it was kind of this just weird, like you were talking to people and they did a pretty good job of not letting you know who they were. You know, I mean, you wouldn't have that experience because you know. Well, I, that's just it. Like and, I, I'm I'm really biased. I'm like, well, you know, Alex was really nice, and mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. Austin and Pamela, and, and so I, I'm because it's not even like I know them and they're my friends, but because I I. Uh, work with them, I guess. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm automatically like, I think you're wrong, Jeff. <laughs> I, I, don't you say that, sir? <laughs> no, and and that makes sense because it does sound. It sounds kind of crazy uh, and paranoid to say it out loud. Like, I mean, yeah, sure. The the lanyard just probably spun the damn thing around. But at the same time, but it's kind like, of weird that yeah, that you never see it. Yeah, yeah. I, know I mean, you're... yeah, it really was kind of odd. I mean, there were times where people were oh, and this is the other thing that I noticed that was really different about this year, as opposed to last year. Is this year like last year you got swag, and this year swag became swag plus. You know what I mean? Like people standing in line for bags. Like, well, like, I was going to say I, this year it felt like you didn't really get swag. No. It felt like you had to line up for swag. Exactly. Last year, people were pressing things in your hand. Yeah, yeah. Last year, and people this, were this like... this year, like, mm-hmm. you really... I mean, you had to line up for bags, which for was bags. insane. I know. I know. On preview night, not only was the entire floor jammed, but there was a line stretching out and around the, you know, the block for DC. Like, you follow it to the front of the line, and it's people picking up freebie comics. You know, it's it's people picking up two pages out of a Wednesday comic and an issue of Detective, or maybe it was a uh, Batman and Robin number one as well. I don't remember. Which... All I remember is the like DC's uh, freebie in the the bag when you picked up your your ticket was Blackest Night again. Mm. Blackest mm-hmm. issue, which at this point has been published three times because this week's Tales of the Core mm-hmm. has the, has Blackest Night the director's cut in it. Mm. Back. Sorry, director's commentary, which right. just completely, as a side note, is the perfect, they finally worked out the perfect format to do comic commentary with that. Oh, really? Yeah, you mentioned that on Twitter, and I, I was like, huh. Um, what they, what they've soon. done is they've, they've reproduced the book, mm-hmm. the art is in pencil form, mm-hmm. and the commentary is in captions over the comic. Uh... And it's the perfect format to do it in. Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you get something different, it's in... Um, Pencil form, and for all I know, they've done this for other things. Like I didn't pick up the Final Crisis director's cut, so maybe they've already done this, and I don't know. Right. Um, but it, yeah, it just worked. It was finally someone who worked out how to do it so that it, it interacts with the comic, and it's not like you know. And here's the commentary on the other page. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Or flipping to the back or whatever. I yeah. I think that's that is kind of a sounds like a great format for it. Uh, right. So. But and even as late as Sunday, to jump back dramatically to to the earlier point, I saw people who were standing in line for for fucking free T-shirts, and they would hold up their badge. I think this was Legendary Pictures or something. Like a line of people and five people coordinating the line. You'd step up, you'd hold up your badge, they'd scan it with a barcode, presumably so you wouldn't get to and give you a T-shirt. And yeah, and and. And also, was the traffic of Con different for you this year? Because I felt like Saturday was the quietest day. 
Yeah, no, it it was almost like everything got jammed to the sides. Like, I remember last year, preview night and Sunday night being the mellowest and easiest time on the floors. And this year, those times were jammed. Like, Sunday was insane. Preview night was insane. Preview night was was incredibly insane. Wasn't it? I was really shocked. I mean, the part the part where you can't walk to certain booths because there are so many people pretty much ready to start a fist fight to get past. Yeah, was just. I mean, if you were at any of the movie booths, it was you couldn't pass, which was crazy. Yeah, yeah. That 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 whole little strip of media gulch made it so difficult. I only got over to the artist alley twice because I was always ending up at one side of the floor. And I would always give up because I'd hit this impenetrable wall of people. I mean, it's bad enough, you know, I'm actually willing to put up with the sort of cosplayer photo things, although sometimes that could just totally back up a a lane for, you know, five minutes, it seemed like. But that was easier to me than just this, yeah, just this group of media stuff where I guess um, it was people giving shit away and people willing to, like, stand in these weird, mutable, movable lines for it. Um, the few times I went on the floor on Saturday, it was actually much better. And Friday was kind of crazy at parts and okay at parts. I, I got the sense that a lot of people, I sort of assumed that because I never went to all, Hall H. I was never going to set foot in there after last year. And uh, Hall H was busy for pretty much all of it. Uh, I mean, obviously, but I think the busiest day was Thursday. I think Thursday for Hall H was just... Horrific, because they had the Twilight panel and they had Avatar. Right, right. And those are the ones that everyone was like, ah, oh, if I don't see this, I will die. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, there's probably a whole separate issue that we could go into about, you know, San Diego's uh, treatment of the press that's just a complete nightmare. Where Yes, it is. But know. that all sounds like complaining. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I think, I, I understand... And at some point, I get upset about treatment of the press because it actually impacts me. Mm-hmm. Like, the idea that I can show up for a Smallville panel mm-hmm. more than an hour before and I can't get in mm-hmm. is wrong. Not because I really want to see Smallville, but the idea that anyone can show up for a Smallville panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, and also the idea that press can't get in to cover these things. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I got into the press room. I managed to meet the stars of Smallville and the producers of Smallville. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, it's you. You can come in. Mm-hmm. But I can't get into the panel where the same people are there. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if you heard, but apparently some Marvel people couldn't get into the Iron Man 2 panel. I heard, well, I heard that Wired, it's Wired Magazine could not get into the Iron Man 2 panel. Well, I, again, that's press. Right. But yeah, no, if Marvel, if the Marvel people can't get into Iron Man 2. If the 2, people who make the movie can't get into the panel. Right. something's gone really wrong and I think what I think will be interesting is that either San Diego Comic Con is going to have to start issuing sort of hierarchical press passes so that you know guys who have just like some small blog and guys who have like big big you know like I9 style blogs have better access or it's going to get into the sort of situation where the studios, which have the power, are just going to have are going to have to start running lists or issuing temporary badges. Well, well, that's what was fascinating for me about the Heroes panel, which was the biggest panel I was in, and it was off-site at the Hilton. Mm. Um, and I had a pass to get in. I had a press pass, mm-hmm. and so everyone's lining up and not getting in, and I could just be like, "Here's my pass," and they were like, "Sure, go in. This is where you sit." Right. And I was like, "This is how you do it." Well, that's it, because, you know, whether you, you know, are a fan or were a fan, you know, you're actually there for your job, and that's that's the important part, you know. Um, Covering it last year very briefly with you guys, one of the things that really made a big impression on me is, like, it really doesn't matter how big a fan you are, I mean, apart from the fact that it makes it a little easier to write an article without tons and tons of uh, time. Research, yeah. Yeah, yeah. research or fact-checking, per se, but... But the idea that it's just as stressful to be in there and be a big, huge fan as opposed to being someone who doesn't know crap about it if you've got to write a story and they're not letting you in, you know? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Like me in Smallville. (laughs) 
Yeah, well, you and Smallville, you have such a complex love-hate dysfunctional relationship anyway, I think. Uh... It's it's funny. The, um, I did the Chuck press room, mm-hmm. and, and I like Chuck. Mm-hmm. But the weirdest part for me was when the last season of Chuck finished, I really liked the second last episode. And then the last episode came on, and I wrote now and I pretty much, oh, this wasn't as good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, last week's was really good, and this was kind of a letdown. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, you write and you don't really think about. Sure. And, then I met, and then I met the producer, and he was like, yeah, you didn't like the last episode, did you? And I had this whole moment of, oh, my God, you can read what I write. <laughs> Yeah, that's kind of a shocker, isn't it? It really is, because I was kind of like, you make television shows. What the hell are you doing on the internet looking at what people are saying about your show? Oh, wait. <laughs> right. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, that oh that's right. Now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so that was weird. That was um, just for like a couple of seconds talking about like high points. Meeting Chris Fedak from Chuck was yeah. really good. Um, and meeting the people who make The Brave and the Bold was wonderful. That that was I could happily like, I could have left Colin after the Brave and the Bold panel. Yeah, you were saying like the whole because you you've been I don't know if they were on the panel talking about it, but some of the information that you were telling me about the guys and their research process and all the characters they're bringing back it it really sounded like a great little moment of haunted tank and GI robots. I mean, really, and also Doom Patrol and Metal Men. Yeah, I can't wait to see Doom Patrol and Metal Men. Yeah, yeah. That that'll be great. Are they supposed to be in the same episode or no? I don't know. I don't think so. Oh, okay. Because and they're doing um, Detective Chimp as well. Yeah, that was the one that melted my heart. All we need is Angel and the Ape, and you know they've pretty much like nailed that sweet spot for me. Is this the part where we just talk about Angel and the Ape every episode now? Because <laughs> well, it was Angel and the Ape last time. Yeah, it was, or a couple of back. I, I figure it's got to be one of our recurring motifs. That and you always talk about Kieran Gillen crying. So I figure like. <laughs> I didn't meet Kieran Gillen and make him cry. That's very sad. <laughs> I'm sure he's still broken up about it. I'm sure um, he's very sad about the fact that I wrote about the Spice Girls in my blog. Though. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which for some reason Ian Brill found very amusing. What, that you wrote about the Spice Girls? Yeah, he was like, Graham finally breaks his, secret, uh, breaks his silence about the Spice Girls. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I had a silence about the Spice Girls? Okay. You know, uh, I think it's true. It's it's kind of like that old Superman Clark Kent thing. It's like, well, you never see them in the same room together. It's not like you've ever talked about the Spice Girls before in our presence. So obviously, <laughs> I am Jerry Hallowell. I'm very sorry to say that. Wow. But if that's true, then I get to work with Ryan Hughes because she does a lot of work with Ryan Hughes. Okay. Bringing it back to comics for a second. Well, there we go for just a second there. Um, yes. Well, I look forward to your team up with uh, Ginger Spice. That's Jerry Hallowell. That's who I am. Jeez. You don't even know your Spice Girls, do you? Wait, I did say that. I said you were you and Ginger Spice. You and Jerry Hallowell. Yeah, but I, I said I identified myself as Jerry Hallowell. Oh, as. Oh, I'm so sorry. There's a lovely wait what moment. No, okay. Yes, yes. Okay. Graham, I hate to say it, but that is a slightly larger stretch for me, honestly. <laughs> it's, do you know how in the original X-Men comics, Angel just like tied his wings with chains like like with a metal bar yes. and I put his suit on it's just like that mm-hmm. I just tie certain things down with metal bars yeah like your hairline like <laughs> oh that well, that's a wig come on oh you know I think this is my problem with the uh, with the Spice Girls and Ginger Spice right there it's like oh right of course that's not their own hair <laughs> such a naive American you sophisticated <laughs> Brits in your pop music <laughs> I try <laughs> That's all I can say. I try. So what What? What was your highlight of Comic-Con? What was my highlight of Comic-Con? Well, there was my official – there was the unofficial one that I'm not going to mention on the, on the podcast, but that I told you about. You know, that, which, which was very exciting. Yeah, exactly. But, but the official part was probably um, – it, it, was, it was probably a cross between seeing Louis Trondheim on the panel – uh, that was just for him. That was that I was worried would not come off at all, 
uh, because I'd seen him on the the indie cartoonist or graphic novel panel by Tom Spurgeon, and which was all these people and him entirely silent, except someone would ask him a question, he'd say a short thing, and then it would be another 20 minutes of him being, like you weren't even really sure if he was following the flow of the conversation, to seeing him on his own panel where Mark Siegel from First Second is interviewing him, and the great thing is able to translate on the fly if there's stuff that Trondheim isn't understanding. Or usually what would happen is Trondheim would understand, he just wouldn't know how to say something just right, and he would just sort of mumble what he wanted to say to Siegel, who would give him the translation, and then Trondheim would say it himself in English. Um, And there was a real immediacy that way to getting to hear this guy I think in a way because he was talking with the moderator that you don't even get when you've got like moderator, translator and, you know, French subject of the panel. But then later standing in line for the signature uh, from him uh, was really wonderful because I think I told you he he has... He had three different books. He had his dungeon books that he was signing. This was at the MBM panel. Uh, the Mr. I and Mr. O, or maybe it's Mr. E and Mr. O, uh, you know, the more formalistic, experimental stuff that was done in a super minimalist style. And then that very lovely uh, autobio stuff that he was doing, Little Nothings. Uh, and like I said, each time that he would sign the book, whichever book he was signing, he would sign in the different style. So he would do a sketch based on whichever book he was signing and if you brought him three books he would do one of each and the whole time just sort of trying to make small talk with you and ask where you're from and I just found him like uh, really just like the unbelievable epitome of a class act I just thought Mm -hmm. that he was so uh, smart uh, and and sharp, but also really connected with his fans, and just unbelievably gracious. In fact, I'll tell you my biggest disappointment about Comic-Con that's entirely due down to me uh, is that that same thing is is at Trondheim uh, signing, I got him to sign Little Nothings, and he was like, uh, do you want me to draw a sketch? And I'm like, yeah, sure, sure. And he's like, um, he's like, of me or of you? And I'm like, ah. Uh, and he's like, I would have to draw you as an animal. And I'm like, that would be great. Yeah. And he's like, and I didn't hear the first suggestion of what kind of animal he would draw me as. But then the second one was like, or I could draw you as a monkey. And Graham, this is my great disappointment. I actually pushed out because it would have been beyond awesome to have Louis Trondheim actually sketch me as a monkey. Like that wait, would be wait, something. Wait, I would take why, to me. why did you push out? I, I, I thought it would be too much of an imposition, and I thought there were too many people in the line, and I don't know. I'm just a weirdo. I mean, you know. I, he volunteered, Jack. I know, I know. And I was like, whatever's easier for you. I totally backed that. He's like, uh, uh, all right, maybe I do me then. I'm like, yeah, yeah, if you think that's better. And he was still waiting for me to go, please, I want you to draw me as a monkey. And my God, did I want to be drawn as a monkey by Louis Trondheim, and I did not have the balls to actually articulate that. It was That's a- really disappointing. I thank you. <laughs> we should uh, on, we should put on in a your little behalf. Wah, That's wah. Yeah, exactly. Thank you, thank you, Graham. <laughs> I appreciate that. Uh, and yourself, oh, what, what would you say is the most disappointing uh, part of Comic Con for you? Um, well, there's the part that I can't say on the recording that I told you about on Thursday night. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's going to drive everyone insane that I've just said. <laughs> um, but that would get me in a lot of trouble if I said that. So yeah. I'm not going to. Um, let's let's leave that. Um, the most disappointing thing? Mm-hmm. The most disappointing thing was actually not at any point getting to really do any comic stuff that I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. I didn't see any of the panels I wanted to see. Mm-hmm. I didn't buy anything. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, that was that was really a letdown. I kind of had hoped on Sunday that I'd be able to run around the floor, and I didn't get a chance. I had like maybe half an hour between my last panel finishing and having to go get the plane. So I'm I'm kind of pissed. But uh, what can you do? It's your job. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, exactly. Well, and again, that the, let that be some sort of sobering lesson, you know, about the potential future of Comic Con. I guess that you can actually go to Comic-Con, be busy for five entire days, and still not manage to see the panel that you want to see. Or, you want to or buy. buy a comic. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's the crazy thing. Yeah. Um, 
That said, uh, Gina from First Seconds gave me a copy of Slow Storm by Danica Nordgorov, which I think I've just mangled her last name. Yeah. Uh, and that's a great book. Is it? <laughs> yeah. I was really, I read it on the plane home and I was really taken by it. It's not, it's not a perfect book. Um, there's, there's, I would have liked more of a, a climax than there was. It, it sort of drifts off, which is at least partially intentional. Mm-hmm. Um, but just in terms of getting atmosphere and tone, and, and it, it was wonderful. It was really well done. I was really impressed. That's good to know. Uh, I actually will will end up. Maybe we can cover this for the the next podcast. But I, I actually did end up buying. Uh, a variety of strange and varied comics uh, on my trip and while at San Diego. Um, I think the one that I ended up buying, though, and that I, I still, at this point, have read all the way through is um, is li- the second volume of Little Nothings by Trondheim, which, you know, again, I just I find delightful. Uh, you know, it's very strange imagining, you know, Eddie Campbell's Alec as like a single-page diary strip with funny animals in it but that's kind of the closest comparison I can I can kind of think of in some ways I love the the earlier experiments that he did with autobiocomics that uh, were collected by Fanographics in the Nimrod um, which were sort of longer narratives the little nothings is very much each page is like a is, is a specific snippet it's self-contained although several pages like if he's on a trip each one will layer into the other mm-hmm. but um it, it's a it's just a beautiful book i mean it's it's delightfully satisfying it's in color and the colors are gorgeous and uh i i think mark siegel made a, an amazing point about trondheim which is that his his art is like handwriting it's like he it, it literally writes with drawing so i mean everything feels unbelievably organic and an extension of him in, in a very um, you know strange and, and supple way like you look at it and you kind of it's it's someone who's really managed to ingest cartooning to such a degree that he just kind of turns it out he'd, he'd be a really interesting comparison to me to make to Kirby in a way um, in that that's just another guy that I think of who just you know literally could sit down and start drawing a page and you know the stories about Kirby as he could start at the you know top left hand corner of one panel and just work his way down to the bottom right hand corner of the page and be done and just move on to the next one you know mm-hmm. and and Trondheim seems like that to me I get just get the sense he sits down he starts drawing and and each page even though it's only a page you get a, a strange sense of it, of it unfolds in a way that um, is really much more organic than I'm used to, to thinking of a lot of comics as being. So that's my big pick. Um, and now I just want to buy that book. Actually, <laughs> you, you remind me, um, I really had wanted to stop by Top Shelf and see if they had the, the complete Alec book, oh, yeah. mm-hmm. which is probably the book I'm looking forward to most this year. Yeah, yeah. I'll be really fascinated to look at that because uh of course Campbell's stuff is 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 brilliant and I mean I had the I had the complete Alec that, you know, came out like eighteen years ago from Eclipse and of course, you know, he's probably added on like five times as many Alec comics since. Oh yeah, the the complete Alec as was then is the new King Canute Club. So you've got mm-hmm. four other books. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That, of that length mm-hmm. in the complete the new complete outlook. Yeah, so I'm I'm really uh, I can't wait to get my hands on that. That that would be delightful. And that has my favorite comic ever made in it, which is Graffiti Kitchen, which I honestly feel is like a perfect comic. Yes, you know you've said that. I love Graffiti C- Kitchen too, and at some point I've got to dig up the. I don't know if I, I mentioned this to you, but but Fanographics. The way I ended up getting hooked on Eddie Campbell, because I had seen his name, like he had a couple of, uh, um, there was an interview between him and Alan Moore when Alan Moore was just coming up in the States that I was like, Mm -hmm. oh my God, this man's amazing. I must follow everything that he does and is read and blah, blah, blah. And he talks about Campbell. And so I went and found some strips that had, you know, some magazines, maybe Escape or whatever that had uh, Campbell in it. And I was like, 
Yeah. I mean, maybe Escape isn't the right one. Is that his later one from Australia? Or what's the one that he was sort of doing back then in the early 80s? Do you remember? He, he probably would have been in Escape at that point. Oh, okay. So maybe it was Escape. And, um, but Fanographics had a, uh, you know, uh, essentially the, the, the cheap man's version of Mome that they were publishing, I think called Honk. Um, that was like a, a magazine, you know, not nearly the size, you know, the same format size of Comics Journal, not nearly as thick. And there was a two-page strip about, from Eddie Campbell, where he compares being in love to a woman to a, a milk gross comic strip. And I just thought it was one of the best things that I'd ever read in my life. Just two pages, and it hooked me. And it's, I'd love to show it to you, because I'm sure that it's, an extension of stuff that later ended up being in Graffiti Kitchen, you know, yeah. because it has that similar sort of where Campbell actually takes the time to write sort of with love and longing about an, another character in a, in a, in a very sort of poetic way. Yeah. Graffiti Kitchen. I, I love, I mean, I really like all of Eddie Campbell's sort of bio stuff, but Graffiti mm-hmm. Kitchen, I love most because it's less insular and less likely to go for the cheap joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's it's a it's really a sad story where he allows himself to be honest and therefore a bastard. Yeah, yeah, and no. I th- I think that's fascinating. I think it's it's just I mean even without the art, I think just as a piece of writing, it's amazing. Yeah, yeah, I think so too. And and of course, it it makes me. I'm not surprised because of course you you keep it there. It's sort of a touchstone in your recent blog entries. It. I am GrahamMcMillan.com, even if you're not. Oh, oh, great. Now everyone's going to go and read my Imunis, but... <laughs> They'll be like, what's this? The Spice Girls? This is nothing. <laughs> they're, they're like, wait, he's a snarky bastard. Why is he, like, getting in touch with his emotions? Yeah, see? Sorry. I, I didn't... We can edit these parts out later. <laughs> anyway, what were you saying? We were talking about Graffiti Kitchen. You're saying I used it as a touchstone. Oh, you used I thought you used it as a touchstone in your writings um, on I'm Graham McMillan. Not, not the stuff about music, but when you're writing about previous relationships, there's an air of melancholy, but also uh, a very self-aware humor. Um, and, 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 of course, you know, in your early... the, the example of the comic strip that you put up where you talk about quite actively self-mythologizing yourself mm-hmm. um, sorry, I do, I actually I, I, I do refer to Eddie Campbell in that I forgot I did mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, Graffiti Kitchen is entirely about, is about the, the, the perils and, and the temptation to self-mythologize and what it can lead to so. Wow, I'm smarter than I thought <laughs> 